0: Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. I would like to start this off by showing you guys a video. Some of you may have seen this. If you have seen it, it works best if everybody just plays along. It's the most fun (laughs) if you participate. There will be an on-screen prompt that's like very quick that tells you what to do. But the idea of it is that there are people dressed in white and there are people dressed in black and they're passing a ball around and you're supposed to count how many times the people in white t-shirts pass the ball. It's It's an attention game. Follow the ball, it's fun. When I was first shown that video, it got me 100% I had no idea what the bit was. Um, I was following along very intently, counting how many times the ball has gone. Was there anyone in here that was just counting the ball? Yeah, ca- counting the white ball, right? Zay, was there... How do I put this? Because it did just say how it goes at the end. How many of you detected the gorilla before it mentioned it? I heard some a smattering of laughs, but not everybody. I did not see a gorilla. <laughs> okay. Okay, so it works for me as well. I remember I was shown this in some class at Multnomah, I don't remember which one but I was like I love those games like in like follow the ball games or they're under a cup I love them because I feel that I'm good at them so when this was first shown to me I was like I'm going to count how many times this ball has passed and I was so confident it was like it was 15 times And I was like yeah dude I know I followed it and then they're like what did you think about the gorilla and I was like what dude <laughs> yeah so if you watch the video there are different creations of it what's pretty crazy is as you watch the video it's not just that like there's a gorilla somewhere like in the middle of the thing like a gorilla walks out and like does one of these and then walks off screen. And if you're following the white ball intently, you don't even see that there was a gorilla there, which is wild. It's about selective attention. And I wanted to show that video as like an illustration that when we approach any text in the Bible's not an exclusion from that, we see what we expect to see and what we're told to see. I just want you to be like thinking about that as we pursue these questions. I'm gonna be in James five, so I'll read it aloud. So it says, um, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the." as we've been going through this series, this portion of the New Testament, James, we've referred to it a couple of times as like the Proverbs of the New Testament. And that's because there are words like therefore and so that, but it seems like very narrative resistant. Um, It's a lot of like little sayings and like little episodes, fortune cookies, if you will. And that makes it hard to put it into a story. So I'm going to put it in a wider story. We're stepping out of James a little bit, and I'm going to be so bold as to suggest Jesus is the main character of all of this. I feel comfortable saying that, because that's what Jesus said. Uh, He he ran into two travelers en route to Jerusalem, and this is post-crucifixion. He's still kinda under wraps, so to speak, for the resurrection, but they're talking about Jesus, and Jesus is there, and he's like, "No, no, 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 bros. And he's like, let me take scripture for the prophets and the law, and he's like, let me show you how all of this is actually about me. So if Jesus does it, I'm gonna do it, it's cool. I'd like to say that the things I am saying are provisional, and I don't have it worked out. I was trying very intentionally to like, not have somewhere I was trying to go as I was preparing for this to kind of just like let the text affect me and see where it went. So if I say things that are um, really profound and awesome, I will take credit for that. If what I say is insane, by next week, we will have forgotten it. So Augustine says that, like a fourth century uh, philosopher and theologian, um, that correct biblical interpretation is one which creates in the reader a double measure of love for God and love for neighbor. And to the extent that your interpretation does not generate those ends, it does not work, which I know for maybe some evangelicals in the room that feels so uncomfortable. It's not to say that there are not better readings of certain texts, but the idea is it is if you don't get to loving God and neighbor more, you're doing it wrong. So like, and Augustine was like aware of this kind of conceptual problem. And he, like he had like this imagery around it where he was like, look, it's almost like you're traveling somewhere and like you and somebody else end up at the same destination, but they took a whack route. It's like, well, the route they took might not have been as efficient, but as long as you guys get to the correct place, It's okay. In the correct places, loving God and loving each other more. So I'm gonna just like share a, um, uh, a parable from Matthew 19. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, "'Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life?' "'Why do you ask me what is good?' Jesus replied, "'There is only one who is good. "'If you want to enter life, keep the commandments.' "'Which ones?' he inquired. Jesus replied, "'You shall not murder, "'you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, "'you shall not give false testimony, "'honor your father and mother, "'and love your neighbor as yourself. "'All these I have kept,' the young man said, "'what do I still lack?' Jesus answered, "'If you want to be perfect, go, "'sell your possessions and give to the poor, "'and you will have treasure in heaven. "'Then come, follow me.' When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell to you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible gonna open this one up for discussion. A lot of these people are church people and answer this how you will. I'm not going to criticize you. What is the main point of this parable? And you can be wrong, it's fine. I'll tell you if you're wrong, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, preach dude, it's pretty good. When I read the, with God, all things is possible, I always think of like a motivational picture where someone's like about to do a backflip. I think he's bummed because he doesn't want it to go away. But as um, Post Malone would say, you can be rich and sad. (laughs) It's a great song. So I I asked the same question to the oracle, the esteemed theologian, ChatGBT. I said, uh, give me the main point of the rich in the kingdom of God from Matthew 19. And what it said is, quote, the main point regarding the rich in the kingdom of God is that it's challenging for uh, the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God as Jesus emphasizes the importance of detachment from material wealth and difficulty for the rich to commit to spiritual values. It's how I've always kind of read and digested the message. But that specific interpretation kind of ends at verse 24, and I think the wider story is uh, what Ali touched in on because Jesus asks how uh, or I ask you guys like how possible is it for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle? Anyone? How possible? Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely, maybe even impossible. <laughs> um, right. And despite that, Jesus said it was going to happen. Despite how we want to read the situation, uh, no matter how recalcitrant uh, a person's character is or how hard their heart is, uh, no obstacle will overcome God's providence. And what's interesting about this particular episode is the topic under discussion is salvation. They're talking about eternal life. Uh, No matter what you do, God is going to win that one. Has very fascinating theological implications. So why do I bring that up? Going back to James, the point of the text that I was getting to is like the idea of um, endurance through suffering, uh, patience. So I wanted to bring up that story about Jesus and uh, God making things happen. Just to contextualize the broader context that um, God's redemptive ends will be realized and that though suffering is real and presently intolerable, according to the Christian story at least, it's transient. It's not a permanent feature of reality. The Bible has more to say about suffering. (laughs) We have uh, the Apostle Paul. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And Peter in 1 Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed what do you guys think of that is that helpful in your suffering <laughs> So how about you enjoy it instead? I just think those were funny. But I, I do feel like when you're not actively suffering, those kind of things are helpful to um, generate you, generate in you a disposition to suffer well when it does happen. We were talking a little bit a lot about um, last week about how life is suffering. And that's true, for sure. But it's also like what life may be suffering, but sure, but, like, but what is suffering? Like there's still more analysis there to be had. Sometimes we use the language of like, this comes from John Hick, famous theologian and philosopher. We would say that like those things are soul making right they, they build character which is definitely true suffering is often our most important lane for doing the most significant work of our lives it's for making discoveries oftentimes it's for opposing evil Allison and I were just talking this morning about th- these conversations they're interesting and sometimes compelling for adults but like children make things really really weird like it's hard to conceptualize any meaning to like a, a child suffering or something and I would never want to say like that's actually good in some way but it does make me think of how when you observe suffering especially in children that is oftentimes where the where the bucks stops where you're just like no more of this we cannot allow this to happen anymore so it can be for opposing evil in a lot of us it generates our most deeply held beliefs i think personally just like of my uh, divorce as a young man of my dad dying uh, of my brother's girlfriend dying and how those were the things that really far beyond anything else generated my theological beliefs i think of when my my brother was in a car accident with his girlfriend a few years ago and uh, it was a few days before christmas and she died and it was the most significant event of my life and my brothers and at the time allison and my older brother his name's Cody. We we're all living together with our four dogs in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, so there's no privacy. And he was just living in the living room and he's our—he's long had, um, as he would admit, like, issues with alcohol and um, suffering really generated more and more of that. And I remember like how many nights he would like um, come into the bedroom just like, you know, crying like wasted, and he'd be like, is the Kaylee in hell? Like, is is that what is that the story she's in hell? And I remember it was in those moments of suffering that I thought for the first time, no, and I believe it. But we've all heard stories of saints that suffer well, especially if we think about them in like the first, second century under persecution. This was not a Christian example, but we've all seen the picture of that monk just like on fire, just sitting there. And they seem to have sometimes like such like a relaxed demeanor almost. Is it that they just don't mind suffering? I doubt that a lot. Suffering always sucks. I think their dignity through suffering comes from a conviction that something greater is on the horizon and that that enables you to bear your sufferings. And I think Jesus really exemplifies this. I feel like oftentimes in conversations, there's this like, there's a moral dilemma. Um, When you do something good, someone will be like, well, did you do it because it's good for them? Or like, because it's good for you and try to dismiss what you did. I think philosophically, like it just in ethics as a discipline, that dilemma is a false one. You can do things that serve yourself and serve others equally. And it doesn't at all take away from the altruism if you benefit also. So with that, I'm going to jump a little bit to the book of Hebrews and maybe say some weird stuff. But Hebrews is a weird book. It's really mystical, man. (laughs) Um, So in the book of Hebrews, I think it's in chapter 12, um, the author of Hebrews, who is unknown, says that Jesus endured the cross, quote, for the joy set before him. And in chapter 2, it says, um, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many Sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. This text is particularly parts of me doesn't know what to do with The, the, the idea that Jesus was made perfect through suffering is pretty fascinating. I feel like a lot of you, if you grew up in evangelical circles, or even if you just reflect on it, you're like, how can there's elsewhere in the Bible? Words it's like, Jesus is perfect, right? So you're like, well, how was he made perfect at his death through suffering, of all things? I don't fully know what to do with that. What is it that Jesus lacked, so to speak, that he acquired through suffering, if that's even the language for it? It might be beyond language. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying, and I agree. I feel like it's so hard to still get around the language of it, because you're like, yeah, it's, it's the language that of becoming perfect that makes you seem like, well, it was imperfect beforehand. That's how you become perfect. You eliminate whatever impurity is still there. But the problem is still, like, a little, like, if we swap out the language for, like, imperfect to say, like, incomplete, or something like when Jesus was incomplete and became complete, like, that doesn't that still feel a little weird? <laughs> <laughs> Oh No, that was kind of a genuine question for me that I, I feel like um, everything you said, I'm like, it resonates with me. Um, I'll move on and maybe come back to it. But that was all wonderful. Um, So, in that text, it talked about Jesus suffering on our behalf, which is a familiar New Testament refrain throughout. That's the whole Christian story is that Jesus endured suffering and overcame it on our behalf. But here, we also have an explanation of why he did it. It says it was fitting for Jesus and those on um, whose behalf he suffered. And the reason that it was fitting is because we're of the same family, says one translation, or have the same origin, says another translation, or all come from one source, says another translation, or most literally and and opaque and difficult to understand and transcendent and wonder-inducing is just all of one. So it was fitting that Jesus suffered these things on our behalf because with his brothers and sisters, us, everybody, we are all of one, whatever exactly that means. How should we interpret that oneness? It's kind of mystical language. Does anything jump out for you guys to say like, we are all of one with Jesus, especially in the context of like his suffering and redemptive act that we are wrapped up in that because we're one with him? I'm glad you brought that up because Allison and I were talking this morning. I was saying that I felt like a little embarrassed to even talk about this because I'm 32 um, and I've had my share of suffering, but I think of like, if there's a 20-year-old telling me about suffering and their problems, I'm like, yeah, 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 dude, like you're a child. And I was like, yeah, but I'm just like a child compared to so many other people. I learned, I'll share with you this thing on TikTok that maps for me one-to-one, but it says like, for example, 20-year-olds are the adult of babies and then 30-year-olds are the babies of the adults. And that that lasts until you're 50 and then when you're 60 you're the babies of, of the olds you guys see what's happening here and, I, and i'm like in the baby of the adults and i am experiencing it like that i'm like very much in like a like a moment of self-reflection in a way that i've never done i bought a candle you know <laughs> never done that <laughs> um, uh, but there's a level where it's like i feel like just anyone just talking about suffering there's always going to be so many people in the audience that are like dude you have no idea and you're right i don't I was tattooing Allison yesterday, and we were talking about suffering. I was torturing her with needles, and she was sitting good, as we say. But there was a moment where she's like, I think this is a good time for me to practice like the exercises that I would try to tell people with chronic pain to, to do. We were talking about the different ways some of those are such bullshit. It's like, there are times where you're suffering and the pain that you have is so extraordinary that it doesn't matter what you're telling yourself. Your mind is 1000% focused on how much pain you're enduring and there's no space for other thoughts. But talking about the oneness. So all of those were great. The author of Hebrews explains what he means by the oneness a little bit. We're like, we are all of one with Jesus because Jesus partook in the same nature as humans and was like his brothers and sisters in every respect and that he regarded those he died for as his brothers and sisters and that he drew no distinction between their best interests and his, or between conditions on suffering and reconciliation and his own. He was of one with us. There's a, this philosopher Thomas Talbot that I really like, and he says that uh, Jesus was no more of an isolated nomad than you and I are, and his future happiness was no less dependent on the future happiness of others as yours and mine is. And I would go so far as to say that it's the same thing with God the Father. The idea that God's happiness and fulfillment are static features of of his own nature, independent of what happens to us, to um, it's like the blistering suffering um, of created animals, human and otherwise, seems inconsistent to me with the God of love that I see in the New Testament, that he would just be indifferent. I think when we suffer, God suffers, and when we experience torment, God experiences torment. But in the Christian story, God doesn't sit idly by and observe like we're a science experiment and he's just like kind of curious how we'll deal with it. He enters into our suffering and indeed goes beyond it. One of my favorite philosophers is named Alvin Plantinga, and he's brilliant. <laughs> Um, uh, it's just a quote from him, like an autobiographical essay, but it's really powerful to me and I think speaks to some of the sentiments that have been voiced in the room. He says, um, some theologians claim that God cannot suffer. I believe they are wrong. God's capacity for suffering, I believe, is proportional to his greatness. It exceeds our capacity for suffering in the same measure as his capacity for knowledge exceeds ours. Christ was prepared to endure the agonies of hell itself. And God, the first being and Lord of the universe, was prepared to endure the suffering Inconsequent upon his son's humiliation and death. That speaks a little bit, I think, to what you were saying, where there is like there's a level where it does feel um, unfair if like Jesus like took the weekend off (laughs) and just like came back. And it's like sometimes I think this feels weird for Christians to say because it feels like you're saying something maybe heretical. I don't think it is. I think it's totally fine, and I think the New Testament speaks of it. But just this idea that God can suffer and God can suffer immeasurably. I don't think any of that makes suffering less horrible. So it's like a really ancient and maybe the most powerful depending on how it's formulated, like argument in favor of, I guess what you might call a theology um, is, um, you know, if God is all good and all powerful, why is there suffering or why is there, why is there evil rather? Um, Actually, Alvin Plantinga, who I was just talking about in the sixties, wrote a book called God and Freedom. And in the entire philosophical community, like not just Christians, they're like, okay, Alvin Plantinga, like he's got us on that one. It's not inconsistent. Like God and evil can exist. And I won't get into details of it at all, but there are features of it that hinder on what you said. Like when we talk about omnipotence, Like when we're doing like philosophical theology and like analyzing those terms. So we have like omnipotence, like all powerful. God can, does that mean God can do anything? And it's like, no bro. There's all kinds. In a lot of ways, like God can't do things that are like, for example, logically inconsistent because in a way those aren't things. Do you know what I mean? Um, And there's a bunch of those where it's like, can God write an autobiography of Mike Mumford? It's like, he can write pretending to be Mike Mumford, but an autobiography means writing about your own life. That's what the word means. So could God do that from Mike? It's like, well, no, he's not Mike. That's nonsense. That's not a thing. So there are all kinds of things that, like, God can't do just because the way that language even works, like, makes them inaccessible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like a really famous book that I actually read with Brandon a billion years ago who I can't remember wrote it, but it was recommended to us by a mutual friend. But it's just like compare and contrasting like Jesus and Socrates. Because when Socrates gets the death sentence, he's like stoic about it. And he's like, yes, I'm not afraid. Like, we don't know what happens. Why would I be afraid? And his wife tries to comfort him. And he's like, get out of here. And he just like wants to be with his boys and his wife's crying. And he's like, you're so annoying with your crying because um, he's so above it, you know? But then when Jesus knows he's going to die, he's like, if there's any other way, please, like, I don't want to do this It's like Jesus was afraid of death. And like Socrates was like too cool for it. Um, But I'll wrap this up. So I'll say that uh, none of what I've said makes suffering less horrible. But I do think it means something, a big something to me at least, to know that the God of the Christian story is not impassively watching and observing that he is invested. He's more than invested. He's identified with himself. He's identified himself with us and wrapped himself inside of our suffering. And as far as the Christian story is concerned, the truth of the universe is ultimately glorious and not tragic. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit KindredChurchReno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email KindredChurchReno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.